0: Hello, and welcome to the Data Science Salon podcast. I'm your host, Q McCallum. In addition to my work as a consultant and writer in the AI space, I'm also a senior content advisor here at Formulated By, the company behind the Data Science Salon events and also behind this podcast. For today's episode, I sat down with Marcello La Roca to talk about algorithms. And I mean that in the classic computer science sense of the term, I uh, like simulated annealing and, and LRU cache and all that. Barticello has compiled his extensive knowledge of algorithms into a book called Algorithms and Data Structures in Action, which should be available shortly after this episode is released. So I hope you enjoy the book as well as our discussion. So, uh, first things first, Marcello, or I guess I'll sadly butcher your, your name throughout the interview. Marcello, how are you today, my friend?
1: Hi, um, I'm great. Thank you. How are you?
0: So far, so good. I'm actually having a great day, especially since I get to chat with you about algorithms and your book and all sorts of other things. So, uh, for our listeners, for those who haven't met Marcello before, I think it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about excuse me, a little bit about you and your background in the tech sector in general, and and your path to this field we call AI. Just let us know who are you and how did you get here? Okay, yeah,
1: that sounds great. First of all, let me thank you again for having me um, on this show, it's a great journey. Um, So about me, well, (laughs) where should I start? So I have a master degree in computer science, I'm a a software engineer, I'd say, and developer. I'm kind of a generalist. I've been working on probably too many different uh, programming languages and uh, tech stacks platforms, from COBOL to Java or C or Python. Um, uh, Recently, I've been working for Apple, um, Microsoft in Zurich, and before that for Twitter in um, uh, in Dublin, Ireland. And um, well, before that I was working for a government-owned company in Italy, and that I could say that was a huge leap. Because at this company we were working on COBOL and then I shifted to uh, JavaScript, Python, Java, more like modern stack. Um, First at their startup, that's called Swift IQ, and it was recently acquired. And um, later, as I said, at Twitter. I mean, regardless, I spent most of my career working either on scalable web applications or algorithms and uh, AI and more recently uh, turned into machine learning. Um, I would say my fascination with AI started when I was like pretty young and then. Uh, College, uh, it was uh, actually my major, although AI looked uh, very different uh, at the time. It was like early in the 2000s. And for example, I was, um, well, it was taught very differently from today. It was uh, neural networks were like a small part in a, a, a AI curriculum or even in AI class. And uh, some things like prologue or, um, you know, edge detection for computer vision, feature detection, manual feature detection were um, what was actually uh, cool and um, intended as like meant as when you say the AI um in the particular i was working on evolutionary algorithms uh, genetic algorithms genetic algorithms in particular and my thesis was on a genetic algorithm algorithms used to draw graphs nicely on on the plane or say on on your screen mm, and um well um uh, since then <laughs> as you as you can as you know, like the field changed completely. Uh, we now it's more about machine learning and uh, deep learning, and uh, I really started getting closer to these topics only in uh, I'd say around 2011, 2012. Uh, first, well, I'd say. First, I would say that there was like a, as there was a winter AI in general, there was also a winter AI for me during those years because I um, worked on different things, like as I say, mostly web applications or um, web design, even uh, flash games. Um, and uh, only around uh, those years, 2011, 2012, I could, I could go back uh, to, you know, I would say maybe, patient or, or topics closer to my patient, and uh, it was like um, with uh, the AI book by uh, Tran and Norving If you if you remember that, probably the, the first online course, like the real, the first real successful online course, that was taught in 2011. That time. I started following uh, back the, this whole area, this whole sector, and then with the uh, machine learning course by Andrew Young the, just a year after. And, well, fast forward five years from then, I was uh, building a ML infrastructure at uh, top companies. Uh, it was like a long journey. At, um, Hard is probably not even fair to reduce it to a few sentences, but uh, it took a lot of studying and, uh, but it was very rewarding and
0: definitely. Yeah, I can imagine so. And I think that says a lot about your career path Uh, there. I suspect there are relatively few people out there who can say that they've managed to touch both COBOL and javascript and on top of that throw in just some machine learning for good measure so i guess do you think do you think it's because you've covered so much ground in the tech space do you think that's what drew you into the world of algorithms
1: Um, well yeah maybe Uh, i mean i've always had this passion for algorithms It, it i I would say it's World's love at first sight in college, um, freshman and sophomore years. We, well, I was lucky enough to have um, great uh, teachers, like great classes, and they started teaching also freshman year functional programming, data structures, uh, recursion, and then on sophomore year we had this class just on algorithms and data structures. And uh, uh, for me, it was like one, once I started um, learning about them, I was completely fascinated also like I felt it was something that I could uh, you know understand without too much effort uh, so you get that uh, that feeling that something you like and you may maybe you're even a little bit good at. Uh, And then probably, uh, maybe uh, it was the other way around. Since I had this um, deep fascination with uh, algorithms, I really wanted to to focus on them. I didn't care much about the programming language I was using or the technology that uh, was uh, needed for a job. So um, I had a chance to to, to have this... um, you know, this broad spectrum of uh, languages I, I learned during my career, and it was not always easy you know, to, to switch from one text to another, but, uh, um, I mean, the, these learning new things, uh, changing is something uh, I really like, like that drives me, uh, especially is learning things, but the, the underlying idea for me is that what what's more important is you know the design, the architecture, the the algorithms that you implement, and not in the language that you use. Actually, you can choose the best language uh, the, or the best technology depending on the problem, and not the other way around. And I would say that that's uh, probably uh, the reason I have. Have the have had this kind of part?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I like what you said there about you know effectively your work in algorithms being language agnostic. I guess for the listeners, we'll take a step back. I forgot to mention that uh, Marcelo is the author of a new book that's I think it's due out fairly soon, called Algorithms and Data Structures in Action. And I and I bring that up because the word algorithm gets tossed around a lot these days, right? That's sort of the blessing and curse of machine learning and AI. Uh, having yes. gotten so much attention over the past several years is that words, their, their meaning tends to fluctuate now and then. And so, for example, the term algorithm, um, I started my career working in finance ages ago. I worked very closely with traders and those sorts of people. Mm-hmm. And so for me, at the start of my career, algorithm was really an automated piece of machinery for, for placing trades or analyzing trades coming in. That was one of flavor of algorithm or algos as we called them back then. Um, you know. These days when people talk about machine learning, sometimes they'll use the term algorithm to describe the high level construct, uh, which will in turn generate a predictive model. Other times they will use the term algorithm interchangeably with predictive model, Mm -hmm. uh, especially when they're talking about um, bias algorithms and data sets, and that sort of thing. But in your case, when you're talking about algorithms, you're actually talking about more of the, the textbook definition of an algorithm, which is a sequence of steps for solving a particular problem,
1: right? Yeah, correct. That would be the, the definition I would give. Um, but also what you mentioned, um, the algorithm algorithms or actually uh, meta-algorithms that are used to uh, train models um, are something that is uh, really important. And we also talk about uh, some of those in, uh, in the book, in particular about uh, um, Meta algorithms to um, like simulated, simulated annealing or genetic algorithms that can also be used to train neural networks or uh, linear models, and uh, a little bit also about uh, linear regression, clustering. Well, actually, a lot about clustering and unsupervised learning. So this algorithms term means. I mean, it's, it can be used in a larger, with a large meaning, um, including also the, the actually predictive models. In the end, those are algorithms that are not written explicitly by a human, but they are um, sometimes as a black box or sometimes more um, transparent, but they, they are developed using a meta algorithm by a machine. But still they are, they, they take an input, they give you an output following uh, usually or, or always the same process. So when you, um, unless the algorithm is doing uh, online learning and it the model changes um, while it gets data, otherwise, should give you the same output when uh, you you give it the same the same input twice. And well, of course, not all algorithms, even the ones that are explicit, explicitly written by humans, not all of them are deterministic. There are lots of randomized algorithms that won't give you the same answer if you run them twice on the same input. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, which which raises sort of an interesting question then when you talk about, you know, the various types of algorithms and, and how they're used. Um, let's face it, when, and I, it sounds like we started our careers at around the same time. When we started algorithms and data structures were a very big deal and they were a very different concept than what a lot of people describe them as today. And I'm sure there are lots of software developers and a lot of machine learning engineers and data scientists who would wonder, you know, we have, implementations uh, in various open source tools I can build tools this way and that way using algorithms. They might ask you why would they want to learn the algorithms at their core, such as simulated annealing or genetic algorithms or that sort of thing. Like, what? Why do you think they would benefit from learning about algorithms at that level? Um,
1: well, probably I would say that um, um, they might n- never find themselves in the need to write uh, uh, such an algorithms from scratch. But it's um, also possible that they, they need raise, raises um, during the years. It can be because they want to use it in, in a new language, in uh, something like, uh, I don't know, NIM, uh, providing a machine learning library for it, or Rust. Maybe, Um, or maybe because they need something customized, like adapted to their needs. Um, Many times when there are constraints, uh, like like you have to run um, uh, your software on a circuit board, so you have limited resources, um, you you might want to write a lighter version of uh, the same algorithm. Uh, but in general, even if you never find yourself um, in the need to write such an algorithm from scratch, understanding how it works, how it really works, helps, helps you, help you then can help you uh, in figuring out uh, when you need to apply it and uh, when, like which algorithm or which data structure you should really use on 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 a particular in a particular context or to solve a, an instance of a problem. And my, um, my my lecturer, my teacher at the uh, the professor that was teaching my college uh, algorithms class, he, he was saying like that you don't need to memorize all the algorithms. Uh, you don't need to know them all by heart, but um, the the point of the course was like knowing that these algorithms uh, ex- exist and that they are used in in some specific situations and this is also what we are t- we were trying to do from scratch in the book um, of course like we wanted to describe the algorithms to uh, help people. Um, Get to the bottom of them like and and just really understand really be able to to write them um, in any language they wanted if they needed to, but uh, a, a very important part of each chapter is um, you know f- giving a frame where giving some examples where these algorithms each of these algorithms was uh, was Better use where it could be it could make a difference like a positive difference or even a negative difference well, because there are situations where like there are more it 's more common that by choosing the wrong algorithm you would uh, uh, degrade your your application's performance uh, and cause cause problems um, I don't know, like trivial examples could be, uh, and really it's it's more common to, to do this with uh, simple things like uh, if you write uh, some software that needs to reverse a list and uh, you don't have any idea about the um, algorithms underlying this simple task, you might end up writing a quadratic method uh, and if, you're, if you have to handle, like it's common today, um, if you have to handle large data sets, then you might be in trouble, your, your application may even crash. Um, or another good reason besides performance is security. And oh, here choosing the wrong algorithm could expose you to, um, uh, to, to attacks, for example, uh, like a there was a um, Ash, though it's it's called it's called Ash DOS attack. It was um, uh, leveraging the fact that uh, Ash tables on servers or nodes were using um, uh, the. Particular algorithms that were vulnerable to to um, adversarial sequences, sequences. So an attacker could choose a specific sequence, um, and, or for example, send a POST request with uh, a huge number of um, like a huge payload with um, many values that would cause many collisions because they would the hash function would all map them to uh, the same entry. And this would uh, make your server unresponsive or even crash. And, and I would say another good reason to learn algorithms is that if, if you know um, like an algorithm can, can make uh, your code, uh, you can refactor your code better using existing efficient algorithms. You can make it more readable. It's like a, a universal language in a way. Like it's uh, some, um, some ideas that, like design powders transcend don't send the single programming language, but they are shared among, like, across all these programming languages. So when you, uh, for example, think about or talk about uh, Quicksort, it's um, yeah, or ash tables or in general dictionaries. Uh, it doesn't matter what language are you using, but if you say that um, a part of as part of um, your application, you are using uh, these sorting algorithms or these data structure to um, to. Uh, either store or query the data. Then everybody that everybody, of course, that knows uh, the basic algorithms or basic data structures, uh, will understand and uh, will have an idea of uh, how uh, this application will um, will behave or what could cause criticality, criticality in general.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what you said earlier about your your class at university where your professor was talking about uh, algorithms. I mean, zooming out, we can almost say that it's not just useful to learn them for, for practical purposes. You know, Like you said, not everyone will need to implement an algorithm from scratch. Sometimes it's just about teaching your brain how to think in terms of algorithms and learning how to expand along that space. Um, which dovetails very well with something else you said about performance. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. One of the things, I think shortly before cloud computing became a thing, we already saw prices for computing power you know, really drop. And then cloud computing came along and suddenly you had access to tons of compute power at your fingertips uh, for a very low cost. And you know, I met a number of people whose take was, well, we can afford to be inefficient with developer time or researcher time because we can just throw hardware at it and sadly what happened just a couple of years after that is that data set sizes grew exponentially as well okay. and so we were we, we were back where we started you know which is we had to think we had to really think about how we attacked a problem and how we translated you know, a piece of math from a, uh, a piece of math from a page to actual working code and where i saw that a lot was in the early days of hadoop you know in the early days of hadoop everything was still map only and mm-hmm. a lot of people they weren't as familiar with the MapReduce model and their view was oh, I just sort of toss my data in this way and it's, you know, it magically gets crunched and you think, no, if you don't understand MapReduce well enough, this job can run for several days. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
1: indeed. Uh, I think it was like the, the, this, this concept of word, this idea you were talking about is, was one of the warnings in an uh, in algorithm book I read. Some time ago, like it's uh, people will say, oh, well back then it people were saying, uh, oh, there is uh, more slow. We are going to double um, the um, the the speed of CPUs every 18 months. So, well, we, we don't care about uh, not being efficient, but in reality, one like as you said, data. Grows or has been growing much faster than any possible speed up and also there are tasks that um, even on the best, uh, on the fastest uh, um, supercomputer that's available today, can, cannot um, run problems bigger than like uh, with distances bigger than like. 10, 10 elements or hundred elements, depending on uh, on the problem and on the algorithm. Uh, so you, there, there is, it is super important to, to know the limits um, of the, the limits of your hardware. But in general, the, the there are theoretical limits um, that uh, no hardware can help with if you use the wrong algorithm.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, let's face it, there are limits, right? <laughs> there are limits to hardware and what yes. it can do for us.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. And I mean, if you are going to, I don't know, uh, if you're gonna need uh, all, the, all the subsets uh, of a set, there is no hardware, not even a quantum computer <laughs> that can help you because you need to list an exponential number of elements. So at right. that point, usually, I mean, as part of an algorithm class or part of a teaching algorithm through a book, it is um, at the teaching the the readers or the students that uh, in that case they probably should question uh, their requirements and see if it's absolutely necessary, for example, to list all the subset of a given set, or if maybe there is. Uh, a better
0: way to solve the problem they have. Yeah, yeah, I mean, deep down, it's it's like anything else in, I guess, computer science or software development or whichever angle we're taking. Deep down, it really is about problem solving. And it's really about finding the best solution to a problem, realizing that the notion of best cuts across several different axes, right? One of them being readability and understandability for the people who come after you, which is where algorithms come into play. Like you said, it's like design patterns. Um, and also just understanding the limits of what a given implementation can do. And that 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 ties to something we were talking about before we hit record earlier. You were talking about a couple of projects you've worked on where you know you were just dealing with tons and tons of data. And I know you can't talk about those in too much detail. I definitely respect that. But if you wanted to share our audience just a little bit about you know, maybe one or two efforts you've been on where understanding the algorithms you were using really made it possible to attack a large data set sort of problem.
1: Uh, Sure. Um, I mean, I was um, working directly in a a social network company. I was working at Twitter and as you can imagine, uh, there there are like really a ton of data that you have to process uh, not every day, but even every second. And then after that, I was working at uh, Microsoft uh, on a um, CRM platform, so this product was making sense of uh, social networks for our clients. And uh, even if the scale was not as big as Twitter's, like I guess uh, Twitter in, in as an average of around uh, well, let's say 10,000 tweets per second, and peaks, uh, as far as I know, around 150,000 tweets per second. So you can you imagine, like, the scale and the kind of database that you need, like, it's so, so much so that they um, created their own key value source Manhattan. Uh-huh. To handle this kind of traffic. But even at uh, Microsoft later, working on this um, co- collecting uh, data from the social network, you were, um, we were processing even millions of tweets and posts uh, for each client, um, especially like in, in well, Probably I should say a little bit more about the project to, to make it uh, clear. This CRM was a solution for customers to help them uh, engage with uh, with their audience. In fact, the project was called Microsoft Social Engagement, and so it was a nice product. Uh, today, it's um, well, it first joined uh, the Office 365 family, and now it's been. Uh, after I left, it's uh, it's been discontinued, and the, the team is working on something different, I guess, <laughs> but um, um, on a different version of the, of the product, anyway. Um the the idea was helping um, both the well the customer service of our clients to uh, make sense of the huge amount of data that you get from different social networks. We were processing Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, adding other social networks as well. But wouldn't want to um, keep any, to to leave any any social network crowd, But there are so many, um, and the the point is that. Um, um, that we were like, using machine learning and natural language processing to um, analyze the sentiment on the streets or to um, find uh, Well, also we had the tools like um, Lucene-derived uh, platforms to search and index uh, the text in in these tweets. Um, We are working on the images uh, on the media content too. And um, no no customer service, no no company could do this manually, could uh, read all the tweets um, understand the sentiment, see where if the users were complaining about something, or raise alerts if the users were complaining about something. And of course, to make this work, uh, it, it wasn't easy. Uh, there was a lot of infrastructure needed. One, to well, first to in, ingest all the data so to find to you know query the social networks search through them and find relevant spots for each client and then to make sense of what we had collected but of course in in the middle we also had to store all this data and indexes indexes it. and um, it's um, well you, you couldn't do any of these inefficiently you couldn't afford to to be uh, n- not to, to be less than uh, perfect or less than the, 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 as fast as you can on, on these for example uh, as i mentioned uh, you you need we needed like a specific tools uh, specific algorithms to quickly index and search uh, the text and make sense of them, and then there were the machine learning models, and so the we had to leverage uh, natural language processing, and uh, even if the training was done mostly in an automatic fashion by uh, you know learning algorithms or. Algorithms uh, like um, let's say, I, I can't go too, too much into the test of course, into this thing, but imagine something like linear regression or logistic regression for sentiments, right? Um, you had to prepare the, da- the data, usually in natural language processing, you had to um, you feed n grams rather than single words to. to to these models, and um, besides that, you have to decide how you want to do this learning. Um, for example, if you when when a client starts, um, you have uh, basically you know data about them, the model, uh, and maybe you can provide them a generic model that works decently for companies and then the model is further refined and trained basically online with um, the data that you get from for the client week by week or month by month. Um, at this point you as you realize you can realize you have um, when the model is evolving, the problem becomes also uh, keeping an history of, uh, of your models every time you retrain it, and uh, being able to fall back to another an model if uh, you experience any kind of trouble um, with, with the, the newer model. And that can be either due to technical reasons, like uh, yeah, you can have crashes, or to if you're not satisfied by the training. And at the same time, you have to, you know, um, add some metric to evaluate these models and uh, keep track of the evaluation that you do. How they react? How is the customer's feedback? Uh, if it aligns with the with what you are predicting, for example. Um, and so, I mean. There are uh, so, so many, uh, besides the machine learning, there are s- so many algorithms that are used to make it possible uh, to collect all this data, to store it efficient, efficiently, to query it efficiently. Um, but, um, I mean, f- for any web application, there are so many, um, there are a uh, lot of algorithms that are leveraged even to serve i can even to serve like uh, the streaming of this podcast uh, our audience will listen to it uh, there will be caching involved both uh, uh, in the in in the client in the in the browsers starting from the dns cache and to um, Static content being cached like JavaScript or HTML, and then there is um, there are probably content delivery networks involved at some point, uh, feeding this, uh, feeding this um, this static content, and there is caching in intermediate network nodes. And if you like the people who implemented this, of course, had to. Uh, reason and design study, caching algorithms, um, and the data structures that are used to implement a cache. Uh, So likely some kind of dictionary, maybe, uh, and possibly uh, simpler structures like arrays or linked lists. By the way, there is uh, uh, a few kids. Chapter 7 on, on the algorithms and data structures in, a, in action book, uh, where we, we talk about this uh, extensively and we show how these caches work and when you, should, you might want to use, to use one or another. But there it's, it's not just caches. For um, Nodes Network, for example, they use uh, Bloom filters. Um, to to keep track of the neighboring nodes and their latencies. And they use graph algorithms to uh, choose which node should should go next. And um, so to minimize latency, there are algorithms used for load balancing by the server if uh, in the data centers or in the server farms, uh, or even if you are implementing if you are building your own server with more more than one machine you probably will use a lot of bouncer and there are algorithms for scheduling and uh, improve whatever metric metric you choose, probably latency, but or maybe throughput. Um, and well last but not least, compression algorithms, both for the streaming of these, uh, these podcasts, but going back to the Microsoft uh, social engagement example, there are of course, uh, compression algorithms for to, to that can be used to um, reduce the, the packets of text for, for the hosts or uh, they are implicitly used Whenever a JPEG image or a, an MP3 audio or, or video, or even videos, um, are involved.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I guess that leads me to, that leads me to the book, right? Because you went from, just being very curious about algorithms and learning a ton about them in school and then applying them to various stages in your career and at some point you decided hey i need to write all of this down so i have to say i applaud you for that i've written a couple of books myself and it's a big deal it's a big deal i've got i've got a preview here and i think this is like what 17 18 chapters on different algorithms what's really what i really like about the book it it sort of touches what you said earlier uh in in our talk here is that the examples, they're, they're language neutral. This is more about understanding the ideas behind these algorithms and less about the raw code itself, which I think makes the book widely applicable, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And we also chose to, to use pseudo code in the book um, to avoid, um, well, to both like leaving out uh, people if we had chosen, for example, Python or Java, um, anyone who is not proficient or doesn't want to learn these languages wouldn't have had. A, it wouldn't have been easy for them, or maybe they wouldn't even be interested in learning these algorithms. And um, But also, we didn't want to get lost in the quirks of any specific language, because if you, like, provide a complete implementation, you have to, uh, you know, in Java, you have to face the the fact that uh, you can use, uh, I don't know, arrays in certain ways. And then, if you want synchronization, you have to Work with different data structures that are specific for that. For the, and um, the in Python, we have to learn about uh, the lists, lists, for example, or tuples, and work around the limitations, uh, the limitations for them. Or maybe you don't have uh, some like there are languages where you have some. Uh, concepts that are in the language like I don't know closures or uh, lambda functions and other languages uh, I can think of I don't know maybe C++, where these are not yet or, uh, are not yet part of the language mm. So by using uh, a pseudocode we um, also we wanted to give the, the readers to focus on the, the algorithms. Not uh, how it uh, it's implemented uh, what uh, what um uh language contracts you need to know to implement it and how to use them um then we also provide a repository with uh, some implementations uh at the moment there is mostly there are mostly implementations in java JavaScript and Python. But I hope to, to, grow, uh, to grow the repository in time and offer all the other languages. And this repository is uh, is uh, free for everyone, but, uh, regardless of whether you, or not you bought a book, you can take a look at the the code and um, get an idea of uh, how you can apply that algorithm. Uh, you can either use it like like it's out of the show, all right? Uh, or you can look at the code and try to understand whether how it's implemented.
0: Wow, that's extremely generous of you. That means um, all the sample code you have out there—it's it's a tremendous learning resource on top of the book itself, which is which is great. And I guess that leads me back to one of my uh, my earlier questions. Then, I mean, you've had this career path, you've had all this this career success with algorithms. At what point did you decide that you wanted to write this all down and, and take on the big task of writing a book? What, what, how did that start? Huh.
1: <laughs> well, it, it's easier, like when it's easier to answer because it was uh, around four years ago. It took quite some time, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it definitely took more than I had expected um why um, well it's um, a mix um uh, of reasons um for sure I, I, I mean i was passionate about this so i want uh, to to take this on i want to also to show that i knew about these topics um in a way i also wanted to Learn more about this, uh, about algorithms in general. And believe me, I had to do some research for, for especially some chapters in particular. um, Like, I don't know, there is um, one chapter about uh, clustering, implementing clustering on distributed systems, like using MapReduce, and that required uh, (laughs) a lot of digging, a lot of studying. but also for um, on the other chapters, what some well, I would say most of the topics I I, I try to write about topics I already I already knew. So uh, most of the topics I was familiar with uh, already. But uh, you still like want try to 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 make it um, as good as you can. So you you read uh you read a lot and in some in some cases there are books that you can like easily get and uh, you can like read several and uh, put together what you really want to say between among all of them you you find um, even only even just like the confirmation that what you are thinking and what you remember is right. Um, But um, there are other cases where there is no material uh, or there is little material. And there are topics like uh, this variant of uh, the nearest neighbor search trees, uh, like that's called S plus trees, that um, there are no books about them. And all, the, only things that, the only things that you can find are either um, some uh, slides uh, or the papers where they were introduced. So you need to really study, dig into these papers, and uh, make sure that all the details uh, are right. Because even if I had used them before, um, one thing is just to apply them another thing is to describe them and especially if you are trying to do it in the clearest possible way so that um, even like to make sure that readers struggle the least possible to understand them and even readers that don't have a a considerable background like a, a background in algorithms that they can, anyway, grasp the basic concepts, and maybe then, if they want, they can also um, uh, dwell more and uh, dive more into the topic. But they can also, uh, they when they read them, when they read a chap- a chapter chapter the first time, they don't get stuck or they don't give up because it's too complicated or it requires. Uh, Uh, Previous knowledge. Um, So, yeah, I I would say that learning was also part of the one of the reasons. Learning this, better, uh, challenging myself, see how much I really understood about uh, these topics. This was one of the reasons uh, why I started uh, these projects.
0: That sounds that sounds pretty fun. And I, I, I know it's cliche, but I have to ask the question. I mean, of all the chapters, all 17 of them, which one was your favorite to write?
1: Uh, well, the one about the, the clustering, the distributors clustering was uh, pretty fun, despite being challenging. Um, uh, it was really interesting, uh, as I told you. Like, I really like machine learning, and in particular, I had been working on clustering, and uh, I was uh, um, and um, well uh, also uh, contributed to uh, tools that were uh, providing um, map versions of some clustering algorithms and it was uh, really fun to write but um, when well, we said that i uh, maybe the ones about uh, simulated analytic and genetic algorithms, these are the last two chapters in, in the book um because they were also applied on graph theory and those are like two areas of um, algorithm of algorithms sorry, that i that i really really enjoy both graph theory and, in particular, graph embeddings, planar embeddings, and uh, uh, optimization algorithms and evolutionary algorithms in particular,
0: so that was pretty fun. Yeah, I bet. I, um, I remember flipping through it a few days ago when I was looking through my preview copy, and. Uh, This just looks like a really fun book. I mean, it's, it's definitely bringing back memories. Uh, A lot of the topics I see on the, on, on the uh, chapter heads, these are all, these are all topics that either I've maybe seen before mentioned in a paper or something, or in some cases I've, I've thoroughly researched them myself and even implemented a couple of them. And so it's just one of these things where that was all so long ago though. So it's sort of, it's sort of a trip down memory lane. And I really look forward to reading this book in detail and maybe, uh, Maybe relearning some of these topics and also learning some of the new ones. Uh, memory serves, by the way. I I just checked the uh, Manning website. I think you've finished writing, but the book is still in editing, right? So when does it do out again? Yes,
1: um, it should be out either by the end of. It should like the printed version should be out either by the end of the year or early 2021.
0: Oh well. Wow. Okay, that sounds awesome. Well, uh, algorithms and data structure in, in action, I'm really looking forward to it. So I, I do want to be mindful of our schedule. I don't want to hold you too long here, but I did want to close out with just a couple of higher level questions. Um, sort of touching on some things we were talking about uh, before we hit record earlier. You know, you were talking about your career path and some of the things you've done. And one of the points you mentioned was that you really have some views on, on interviewing In the data science world, can you can you shed a bit more light on that?
1: Um, Sure. Yeah, that's uh, I guess an interesting topic. Um, So, well, how how long do we have to talk about it? Because it's uh, it's, uh, really something that's I mean, uh, some uh, I think, yeah. Well. you know, today most of the interviews, at least at the uh, at many top companies, are like whiteboard interviews, and on on, on the it end it's nice that they also check the algorithms, uh, the knowledge about algorithms, algorithms and other structures. Um, but on the other end, I feel that it's a bit too, you know. Disconnected to our usual work. And you can see, that, of course, a lot of memes on, on Twitter or on the socials about this as well, making fun of the fact that what they ask you during these interviews is um, like they ask you super, super challenging, super interesting things on these whiteboards. Uh, I, I think once I was asked to design a data set on the moon, uh, sorry, not a data set, a data center on the moon, and consider all the problems with that, and it was like one of the funnest, um, most enjoyable interviews that I had. But on the other hand, then you start working, and they ask you like to solve a bug uh, because uh, Something is not printing correctly on a web page, <laughs> which is, you know, <laughs> you know like they have the bar to eye for your expectations. But at the same time, they are not testing you on the kind of work and interaction that you need to do uh, in your daily job. Uh, they are usually not testing you for something like uh, Git. They don't test if you know if you can use kits or can solve problems. Something some sometimes they do ask some questions about that. Like um, uh, I also have been asked questions about uh, the difference um, uh, between your base and, uh, a rebate and just but. Uh, uh, many more times they don't and they don't test how you interact uh, with, uh, with other people or how you debug code so i took this at, um, at heart already when i was working at Twitter i must say that we were doing a lot of work in trying to make our interviews different and uh, at the same time i think this is useful because um, Having different kinds of interviews, like not having five whiteboard interviews, help um, the interviewers uh, understand better. Like not for, um, how can I say it? Like different, helps in a way, like diversity in your promote diversity in interviews backgrounds, right? Because um, Otherwise, you are only tasting, you are only checking one muscle of the people you interview, and you are only picking those that are really good at coding fast under pressure on the whiteboard. But our job is much more like it's many more things at the same time. So we were trying to um, think about uh, giving a mix, for example, asking uh, for. uh, take it home. Uh, questions uh, like small projects that don't take too much time, uh, and possibly like you can like this way you can evaluate um, th- different people on the same uh, on the same task and see how they perform. As long as you are uh, as an interviewer. You don't evaluate them in a, a rigid way. Like you have to still try to understand and talk to to the interviewee about why they made some choices, not just see the final result. Otherwise, it, I don't. I think it wouldn't work too well. Another option was um, doing actually um, bug hunt, uh, like. Uh, debugging uh, some code and working in pair with uh, uh, with the interviewer or with another interviewer to write some code implement some feature. This also helps understanding how uh, the interviewee gets or analyzes the requirements and um, if they um, like understand Ask the right questions if they uh, go straight implementing something, or if they try to reason first and make sure they implement the right thing for those requirements. Anyway, I mean, I think there is uh, actually there is a a lot of work to do that we can do to improve this process and. in the process, like avoid penalizing good engineers that maybe uh, don't perform well under in certain exercises, but at the same time we can uh, discover different different aspects of their their charter, the way they interact with the team, which is also important, and uh, soft skills at the same time.
0: Yeah, I, you'll, you'll get no argument from me on that one. I, and like you, I've, I've been in this field for a while now and it's, I get it. It's very easy to, to challenge someone's actions and decisions in the review mirror. I get that on the other side. I mean, let's face it, to your point, a lot of tech interviews, they just are not a realistic representation of what the job will actually be. And some of them are really designed for people to, as, as, as we say in English, they're really designed for people who study for the test as opposed to studying for the subject, if you will. Um, yeah. Which, and it's unfortunate, right? Because it's not just that you risk having a bad interview experience with a candidate, which I mean, already that reflects poorly on your company. Worse still is you run the risk of hiring someone who is a good fit for the interview, but not a good fit for the job. And any And for our listeners out there who are in leadership roles, who have been on the other end of that hiring desk I'm sure they can tell us all just how expensive it is to hire someone and how expensive it is to hire someone who's not a good fit. So, um everything you've said about interviewing definitely resonates with me and I do hope that I do hope that going forward companies um I do hope that companies take take those thoughts seriously and start to make the interviews a bit more bit more flexible and a bit better geared for the work to be done versus, I guess you can say testing how well someone has memorized a bunch of algorithms.
1: <laughs> Definitely, I mean, I, I saw uh, friends being uh, failing interviews because they didn't remember by heart some algorithms and then like, succeeding at a different company of the same level or even better. Uh, and I think that was a huge loss for who discarded them in the first play. And on the other end, I saw uh, especially juniors being there because they had time to study these, uh, these algorithms. And then on the first day of the job, you had to explain them how a you know, code repository worked or uh, how to you know, handle a, a task or bug something. And it's really unfortunate. It's, uh, uh, I mean, it's a lose-lose situation if you want, if you, if you want to put it this way.
0: <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, thanks again for taking the time to, uh, and thanks again for. For going with me down that quick rabbit hole around hiring and (laughs) interviews on data science it's it's in in technology it's it's a very important topic for me as well but uh, like i said i do want to be mindful of your schedule i don't want to keep you too long here but Marcella, thank you again so much for your time today like i said i i've been flipping through the preview copy of the book algorithms and data structures in action i'm really looking forward to seeing the finished product in a couple of months and Thank you for taking the time to speak with me and our listeners about your career history, uh, your love of algorithms and the new book.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, it was my pleasure really. It was really
0: nice. Excellent. Thank you very much. Cheers.
1: Cheers. Bye.
0: Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. I've been your host, Q McCallum, Senior Content Advisor at Formulated By, which is the company behind the Data Science Salon Podcast. I'd also like to take a moment to thank the Formulated By team for making this podcast possible and for doing all the heavy lifting to edit the content and otherwise make me sound good. Now, from now till the end of the year, Formulated By is hosting three virtual data science salons. These are four day events where leading data scientists share their experience, expertise, and best practices on how to apply AI and ML to different industries. If you're interested in attending, you can check out the Data Science Salon website, that's datascience.salon, for the full schedule and registration.